Section six of the Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter six. Rising in the Cévennes. Two regions of France seem to have been especially open to the influence of Protestant or Huguenot opinions. One is the lower valley of the Loire, where the doctrines of the Huguenots were accepted by the artisans of the great industrial towns of which Nantes may be taken as representative. This town, as is well known, gave its name to the Edict of Toleration, by which, under certain conditions, freedom of worship had been permitted to the Huguenots. The district must also be made to include the country to the south of the Loire as far as La Rochelle, the favorite stronghold of the Huguenots. The other part of France is the lower valley of the Rhone, beginning with Lyon, which in the persecution lost nine thousand of its silk workers, and the hills which close that valley in. On the east side is Dauphiné, the home of the Vaudois. On the western is the province of Languedoc, in which during the twelfth and earlier part of the thirteenth century the sect of the Albigenses was strong. In several points the Albigenses resembled the later Protestants, in their opposition to the Pope, in their indignation against the corruptions of the Church, and in their vehement zeal for a purer form of faith based upon the Scriptures. The Albigenses were put down after a cruel persecution, which is sometimes dignified with the title of the Albigensian Crusade. But it would seem as if memories of this earlier struggle, the seed of religion which is found in the blood of martyrs, remained in the country where they had laid down their lives. When persecution broke out in the middle of the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, the Huguenots of northern and middle France saved themselves by flight to happier countries or by an acceptance of the dominant faith. The regions where resistance was found were the natural homes of liberty, the mountains of the south, first among the Vaudois, and secondly in the Cévennes. Cévennes is the name of the range of mountains that runs nearly parallel to the Rhône, at some little distance from its right bank. At the southern end the range separates from the direction of the river, trending toward the Pyrenees, leaving a marshy plain between the mountains and the Mediterranean, in the midst of which is situated the town of Nîmes. The hills are of volcanic origin, though the volcanoes are extinct. They are rough and precipitous with many caves and fissures, yet in many places thickly covered with forest trees. It is just the country in which a few peasants, well acquainted with footpaths and byways, might keep at bay a regular army, even though its soldiers were many times more numerous than they. Mixed with the pure religion of this simple mountain folk there was certainly much fanaticism. As the persecutions increased in intensity, many amongst them professed to be inspired, and shortly after the opening of the new century, the inspirations took the form of exhortations to resist. It was remarked that the spirit of prophecy fell chiefly upon the young, and that in the insurrection which followed the leaders were young. In July 1702, the very year in which the War of the Succession commenced, and shortly after that war had been proclaimed, fifty of the persecuted, excited to resist by the prophets, met in a forest under three tall beech trees. There they determined to attack their persecutors. 
the insurgents became known as the camisards or wearers of the white frock but it is not certain whether this was the ordinary smock-frock of the country peasants or a special dress chosen that the wearers might be visible to each other on a dark night the fighting that arose out of this insurrection to which the name war of the blouses has been given cannot properly be called a war it was rather a series of raids the camisards would issue forth from their mountain fastnesses and make an attack upon a priest who had persecuted them upon a monastery or upon a troop of royalist soldiers the attack over or the enemy proving too strong they would retreat at once to the hilltops again they knew all the paths they could climb like their own sheep or goats all the peasants sympathized with them and would help them to hide from the royalists their troops remind one of the regiments of the english puritans before a battle there would be a meeting for prayer and preaching and praise at which men would exhort officers the camisards marched to battle lustily singing a hymn to the god of battles and when the fighting was over however great the carnage on the very field uprose the song of praise and thanksgiving to him who had given them the victory of all their leaders the most remarkable was jean cavalier in the very year in which the edict of nantes was revoked was born this leader of the rebellion which that revocation caused he was of humble parentage his father being a shepherd and his mother had trained him in the protestant doctrines at the age of fifteen he had to fly from the country and took service with a baker at geneva then as always a hospitable place of refuge for the exile whilst in safety however he felt for his kinsfolk and neighbours who were suffering and at length the baker's boy determined to return and to rouse resistance he was only seventeen when on account of his manifest fitness for the post he was recognised as the general of the camisards bravery was a virtue that he shared with all his men he had other qualities of his own the education which he had received could have been but little and not calculated to fit him for his work yet he was a born general and his manoeuvring on one occasion exhorted from the ablest living marshal of france the praise that it was worthy of caesar three stories from his life in these two years will serve to illustrate his daring his chivalry and his uprightness one on one occasion as his men wanted powder he rode disguised as a merchant into the town of nimes to buy some on entering he found all in confusion for a rumour had just reached the town that the camisards were preparing to attack it the gates were immediately shut but cavalier having procured the powder that he wanted and carrying it about his own person went to the officer commanding a troop of cavalry that was riding forth against the rebels and asked permission to ride with it the officer complimented the supposed merchant on his courage but warned him at parting lest he should meet with the dangerous cavalier two riding in disguise as was his wont he once acted as guide to a young royalist officer conducting him to a place of safety and then revealing himself to him as they parted three some banditti took advantage of the disturbed state of the country and pretending to be camisard plundered and murdered a lady immediately on hearing of it cavalier set to work to find the men and having found them hanged them without ceremony not hastily nor without provocation 
had the Camisards taken up arms. During all the seventeen years of Cavalier's life, the persecution had been terrible. Nor had it been limited to those years. The revocation of the edict was not a sudden reversal of policy, but rather with its results the culmination of one long continued. It was known that cruelty and severity toward Protestants was a passport to the favor of the French king, but a legal sanction was given by the formal revocation, made within a few days, of the king's secret marriage with Madame de Maintenon, who, instigated by the Jesuits, urged him on to it. What the king had allowed before he ordered now. All bands of humanity were withdrawn. A regiment of dragoons was considered the best body of missionaries. If they could not convert, they could at least kill, and attention was paid to no complaint against these instruments of holy church. It was in the province of Languedoc, in the earlier wars against the Albigenses, that when one asked how to distinguish the heretics from the true believers, the savage answer was made, Kill all, God will know his own. Peaceful valleys were turned into scenes of slaughter, and the most cruel tortures, the wheel and the rack, as well as the stake, completed the work that the sabres of the dragoons had begun. It is hardly to be wondered at, though it is much to be deplored, that the Camisar, when at length they turned upon their persecutors, retaliated with a fearful retribution. Cavalier himself was not cruel, but many of the bands of Camisar, under other leaders, took terrible and cruel revenge, nor was he able to stop it. All the early attempts to put down the rebellion were by means of severity. There was a feeling of irritation, both amongst the local authorities and at the king's court, that so insignificant a body of peasants, for the insurgents seem never to have numbered ten thousand, should dare to resist the royal authority. More troops to catch the rebels, more tortures for them when caught, were the only cures that occurred to their minds. As yet, the external war did not press very heavily upon France, and it was thought that the rebellion would soon be crushed. Thus, for about two years, the insurrection continued with varying success, the insurgents making raids, the royalists sometimes intercepting them, but oftener failing. Meanwhile, the Camisards, knowing about the war with the Allies, made appeal to foreign governments for assistance, and especially to England and Holland. With touching simplicity, they declared that they were not rebelling against their prince, but exercising a right of nature. We arm ourselves but to resist force. We follow but the dictates of conscience. We are not to be frightened by numbers. We will meet them. Yet will we harm no persons if they do not harm us. But just reprisals will we ever make upon our persecutors, and in this we are sanctioned by the law and by the word of God and the practice of all nations. At first the foreign governments turned a deaf ear to their appeals, but it was evident that if a force of the Allies could effect a junction with these insurgents, a great blow would be struck at the French power. At length, in 1704, a force of ships was sent under the command of Sir Cloudsley Shovel, a gallant and famous English admiral, who had risen to that dignity from the position of a cabin boy. When the fleet arrived in the Gulf of Lyon, the appointed signals were made, which were to be answered from the shore. But correct information had not been brought to Cavalier, and though he saw the signals, 
he did not understand them. The admiral had received strict orders to land no troops unless the signals were answered. He therefore sailed away. The rebellion had now lasted for so long a time, upwards of two years, that Louis determined to send against the Camisards the first marshal of France. He probably selected Villars on account of his military skill, but the selection was good for other reasons. Villars was no bigot, and seems from his first appointment to have resolved upon a policy of clemency. He entertained a great admiration for young Cavalier. He opened negotiations with him at once, and the result was that a treaty was made by which the freedom of conscience and liberty of worship, except in fortified towns, were granted, together with a free pardon for all the insurgents who accepted the treaty, and immunity from taxes for a certain period until the district should have recovered from the effects of the war. Some of the Camisards were very indignant with Cavalier for signing this treaty, because the possession of certain strongholds was not granted as a guarantee for its fulfilment they still held out but by his acceptance of the treaty the rebellion was now very much diminished and was without great difficulty put down the spirit of the treaty was not strictly observed and a great many of the inhabitants of the cevennes emigrated the success of louis was in the spirit of the maxim solitudinum faciunt pacem appellant cavalier himself took service with the english government by whom he was sent into spain at the head of a regiment of his fellow exiles he was engaged in the famous battle of almansa the story is told how in that battle the camisards caught sight of a regiment of their former persecutors and rushed upon them with the bayonet with a fury such as shocked even men accustomed to fierce battles of seven hundred camisards only three hundred survived and cavalier himself severely wounded was left among the dead he afterwards became a general in the english army was governor of jersey then of the isle of wight and died an old man at chelsea as france had a weak point in the disaffection of the huguenots so the empire was weak in its eastern side from one opponent the turks it had perhaps not much to fear for the turks had suffered severely at the hands of eugene in the last war and were moreover obliged now to turn their eyes in another direction toward the growing power of russia but in wars against the empire the turks had always found allies in hungary and transylvania the disaffection of these two provinces was due partly to the pressure of taxation partly to differences in religion but chiefly to that desire for separation from austria which has so often shown itself in hungary the taxes were very heavy throughout all the austrian dominions the protestants in hungary had been persecuted by the emperor and this had led to the last hungarian insurrection when the turks instigated by the hungarians had invaded austria and besieged vienna the desire for separation was constant during the war of the succession the condition of hungary might be compared to a fire that is composed of smouldering embers ready at any moment to break into a flame here and there flames showed themselves when a turbulent noble headed an insurrection but as the empire was on the winning side elsewhere these rebellions never became formidable End of section six